Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 15th of May 2017. This programme looks at the Great War Diary of Belgian priest Achille van Wallagen. Please excuse my Flemish pronunciation. His parish was in the Dickenbush area in Ypres in Belgium, which, for the majority of the war, was behind the British front line. The diary entries for 1917 have been translated into English by Dominic Dendouven from the Inner Flanders Museum in Ypres. The diary, titled 1917, The Passion Day All Year, The British Army in Flanders, The Diary of Achille van Wallagen, is due to be published in English on Wednesday, the 17th of May. It will be available online from Edward Evett Root Publishers at eerpublishing.com. To mark the publication of the diary, I spoke to Dominic about Achille's life and work. I started our discussion by asking Dominic what was unique about the diary. The, the civilians are too often overlooked, yet they offer a very, very interesting, a very interesting stance for they are in one way or another bystanders. So... Um, like for Mulligan is a good case. He he's a priest, mm-hmm. so that means that he travels throughout his parish day in day out throughout the village. Yeah, and at the same time he has officers billeted in his house, so he has direct information of what's going on military wise. And at the same time he sees, so he's more critical than whatever. That's that's the the importance of this diary having it finally available in English, is that um, we gain new insight because he criticizes the British now and then. He offers another view on what's going on. He differentiates between um, the different British units, troops. Uh, I mean, he gives vivid descriptions of the Australians, etc., um, and distinguishes them from the other uh, imperial troops. And, and that's that's really the strength of this diary. Um, and it's, it makes you question a lot of things we take for granted. Um, like in 1917, the year that is now, the diary that is now being published. It's, it's amazing how all these civilians know what is going to happen and how accurate their information is. So there wasn't a great deal of secrecy about the the events going on and the preparation of the offensive and so on. Um, at the same time, there are things like what he mentions is these the locals called Spionitis, the, the, the great mistrusts British, mainly British officers had for local Belgians and, and thinking they were all spies. So so there's a lot of new things that this, this kind of, of adding the voice of the local can add. At the same time, their situation was quite extraordinary for... You can compare it with, with, with the rural village. I mean, r- compare it with the rural village in your um, in your area, and imagine that all of a sudden the local population is overwhelmed, is flooded by not hundreds but thousands of foreign soldiers. So that really has an enormous impact. The, the local people are, are are really minorized in their own in their own lands. So it is um, an extraordinary uh, situation apart from. That's new insights that we can gain through this diary. Because I do think this is really interesting. Um, you know, it just gives such a unique perspective on on because we're so Anglo-centric, we're so army-centric here. Yes, true. Yeah, well, it's one of the things I, I quite often say when giving a talk and using Vowalling and another and other local sources is that if you look at 
my main critique of British military historiography is that, and certainly if you look at um, regimental histories and the like, is that very often it seems like these men are fighting in the void. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no one, no one on the opposite side. There's no one to the left of them, no one to the right of them, and they're living in an area where no one is living. So this is the kind of sources by making it available in English. And I can tell you, it was quite. It took me 15 years to manage to have a, a translation ready. Um, it was not a not an easy task, but that is something that really, really, it's my conviction that it will add something new to the way we and you on the other side of the channel look. That's the first of the war. So how big was Achille's actual area that he um, administered as a priest? I suppose his parish would be what we would call it. Yeah, it's the equivalent of a civil parish in, um, in the UK. It's a village mainly, and then the surrounding, it's a rural area. So a rural village and the surrounding farms, um, in his case, Dickerbus. Now, what happened earlier in the war is in 1915, he was forced because Dickerbus was the first, and still in 1917, is the first inhabited village behind the front line. Mm-hmm. And due to the shelling, he's forced to move one village further up. Well, if I say further up, it's only two miles further up, which is Renningelst. So he lives in Renningelst, but almost daily travels, walks to Dickerbus to visit the still inhabited farms. The area is mainly, it's quite limited. So it's, it's also a microscopic view of life behind the front line in these two villages. And because certainly when British units arrived in Ypres, I've got accounts of soldiers being obsessed with spies, you know, finding yep. spies everywhere. And the, the idea that, that a population, somehow the Germans, had established such a sophisticated network of spies that everybody was a spy. And I'm really surprised that this idea of, of the local population has been hostile it still exists in 1917. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just, maybe I'll just read you out a part of that, a good example. And it's April, it's April 17. But of course, um, there is a bit of nervousness as, as the preparations for the, the Battle of Messines Mm-hmm. Um, is, is in full swing. He writes so so literally. I mean, on the 17th of April, he says he starts his his entry by saying they expect an English offensive here soon, um, and he knows because in the presbytery space has been made ready for a general commanding an army corps, so really a large unit. But then he says, well, he explains this. Yeah. Yet another spy has been arrested in Dekebus, farmer Arthur Kavmeier, and the reason a few days ago Kavmeier had plowed a piece of land to sow oats in it. But unfortunately, the soldiers had walked across it to go to their guns nearby so that there, that here and there, the soil had been compacted into paths. Today, Kavmeir went and loosened them with a harrow, leaving untouched what had remained untrodden. But lo and behold, a cocky young officer berated him for giving signals to the German aeroplanes, aeroplanes by not harrowing his land uniformly. However hard Kavmeir tried to explain his agricultural theories to him, it was of no use. And the last he heard was, by tomorrow morning, the entire field will be harrowed over, uh, will be harrowed or will know where to find you. It was evening, Kavmeir intended to comply the next morning, but unfortunately it rained heavily, uh, which made harrowing impossible. And that was enough. The following night they uh, raised, they got Kavmeir out of his bed and all the soldiers of Redinghaus and surrounding area soon knew that a big spy had been arrested in Dickerbus. He was then detained for three days, was questioned several times and returned home just like almost all the other spies. This is just one case among thousands. So, and then he gives another case that 
there was also that farmer in Renninghaus who began spreading manure on a three-acre piece of land. He had barely dropped little heaps from two cartloads when an English officer joins the party and claims that the man is signaling to the Germans using the little dung heaps. The man explains what the purpose is, the Englishman doesn't trust this, but allows him to continue on one condition, which is that the entire field must be covered by the evening. So, and then he gives some other examples. So it's, it was really, really, really not, not rare. Later on, a couple of, of days later, um, he reports on the questioning of that farmer Kavmeyer, which is also quite, in his eyes, quite a ridiculous uh, event. Yeah, that mistrust continued. And I think language is somewhat to blame for it, mm. because of, of course the locals, by 1917, they would understand quite some English, but still their local tongue is Flemish, with no British military uh, understood. Obviously, there was tensions between the British and the local population. Were there any positive relationships? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Van Allerham, for instance, reports on... on um, the wedding of a local girl with uh, a British soldier. Um, and he says that, for instance, he mentions that the comrades of the man, of the soldier, were cheering uh, while he was looking a bit, well, not beset, but, but didn't seem to be, uh, it seemed more like they were making fun of him. And that the local girl, and, and that is quite a more sad aspect to what in the end is a, is a happy story. Um, but that local girl, as she married a British, office, a British soldier, and that according to British law, um, she had to leave the country immediately and settle in Britain. So um, at the same time, the family of the bride was uh, weeping as uh, the daughter had to leave at once and settle in Britain. Uh, that's really interesting. I didn't realise that. And the other, the other incident you talked about was a shield attending the execution of a British soldier. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's um, and and throughout the diary, not only in the 1917 um, volume that is now being published, he mentions this. But again, allow me to read a quote. So it's on the 14th of November 1917. Um, and he says. Um, and, and of course, as we know the date, you know exactly about uh, which soldier uh, he's talking about, even if he doesn't mention the name. So on the 14th of November 1917, he wrote, In the morning, an English soldier is shot against the convent wall here for refusing to go into the trenches. It was his own comrades who were appointed to the firing squad. Many of the soldiers have already spoken of how painful this is to them. Some of them weep with remorse. Um, and, and so the soldier in question was 20-year-old Private William Smith from, from Manchester, um, who's indeed buried at Renninghouse uh, New Military Cemetery. So there's a lot of facts in the diary which you can link to, to other sources. But then he adds the comments that, uh, of the reaction of, of, of the comrades who had to, had to be part of the firing squad. I think that's amazing. I mean, so I think some of that side, I, I assume he was there to, to act as a, as a priest to give the last rites. Uh, well, he, he wasn't really allowed, but um, because that was usually done by chaplains. Um, but of course, these chaplains are very often billeted with him in the presbytery, or he meets them and he exchanges uh, words with them. So, so he's he's extremely well informed. Also, on for instance, giving the last rites to soldiers and uh, who have to be executed. So that's the that's. Again, again, that's the strength of this diary. That he has his information and he adds his personal bystander view to it. And as even even the presence of journalists was very pretty much restricted, we do not have many uh, third-person views on on what's going on. So, uh, Shields' diary, in many ways, is a unique source. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm, I'm pretty much acquainted. 
um, with, with British military historiography of the First World War. There are many things which are not mentioned, uh, not mentioned elsewhere, um, like fights between imperial troops disliking each other. Just one example, Christmas Day, um, he reports on fights, fights taking place between New Zealanders and Chinese laborers from the Chinese Labour Corps. And again, fact that can be corroborated with, with graves because some of the Chinese were shot. And indeed, you find in the nearby village graves of Chinese laborers who died on Christmas Day 1917. Other examples, of course, is, 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 is the relationship between the Belgians accommodating the troops and the British from whatever kind, and some are more light than others. There's only one caveat, and that is that you have to keep in mind, and hence the importance of the introduction to the diary, that Achilles, of course, he's a Catholic priest in what then was quintessentially a Catholic uh, country. And even if he tries to overcome his his prejudices, for instance, he gives quite neutral descriptions of, again, the Chinese laborers or so on. The only bias he really has is towards, uh, for instance, Protestant, Protestant chaplains. He tolerates them, but when he can, he says, well, but, you know, the Catholic Catholic chaplains, they're pretty much more devoted and etc. Um, so that's the only thing where you can still say, well, he looks at them from his Catholic priest's perspective. I think this diary is really interesting in that it gives a, an amazing counterpoint to some of the British perspectives on the Belgian peasants that the, the British soldiers encounter and how the diary actually gives um, the opposite view, so to speak. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, I'll give you one a good example of how he differentiates when he compares the when he describes the Australians and he compares them to the British more in general. Um, mind you, he um, he always says English for the whole of, of for all the UK troops. Allow me to read two quotes. One is a more general one, um, where he, for instance, says, "This is early October 1917," and he writes. <laughs> Um, we are increasingly convinced that the English are not very bright as people. Up until now, we have found little or nothing to learn from them. On the contrary, we still see new examples of stupidity every day. Along the Abela Road and as far as Decabus, the Chinese are busy filling in the ditches. So what will they do with all the weather in the coming winter when soon all the drainage pipes and culverts will be blocked? And the best of all, while they are busy filling the, the ditches along the Alderdom Road, 300 meters further on, they are cleaning out the ditches, knowing that tomorrow or the next day they may be filling in those two. Such squandering of money. Another instance, a farmer made a compensation claim because the cavalry had turned his chicory fields into a stable yard and had destroyed chicory plants. And the officer's response, response was, well, you shouldn't have put those things in the ground. So, and then, for instance, when he, when he compares with the Australians, uh, this is just a couple of days later, October 1917, and he writes, we have had the Australians living among us now for several weeks and we are getting to know their good points and their faults. They are good-looking and lively people, sturdier and more coarsely built than the English, not a single dullard among them. They are no dirtier than the English, but they don't spend the whole day washing and shaving. They are courageous fighters and know no fear. And that's one of the reasons why they are usually put in the worst sectors of the front, which they are also proud of. Although when they've had a bit to drink and are quarreling with the English, they often bring up against them that they always have to risk their necks while the English choose the best spots. But they are rather, rather wild. The biggest fault is drunkenness. And the main cause of that is that they are paid so much. An Australian earns six shillings a day, a New Zealand five, a Canadian four, 
and an Englishman won. So when they are on rest and they come into the village, sometimes after a couple of weeks in an area where there is neither inn nor house and thus with their pockets full of money, they are eager to go out drinking and so beer and wine and champagne do their worst. Innkeepers and wine merchants make a lot of money, but they also have to suffer the consequences. It is not unusual for the soldiers in their drunkenness to smash them into pieces. And when the official closing time arrives, it is often impossible to get the drunken man out. They just keep asking for more drink. It has to be only the women folk of the inn who attempt to deal with them. And by coaxing and cajoling, they are usually successful. And then it continues for a whole end. And what is funny is that he says, in that respect, they are no better than our drunken Flemings. More's the pity. So um, in general, and he ends, in general, the Australians do even more damage than the English. And our farmers complain bitterly about them. Just as in the Canadian army, one finds a lot of thieves among the Australians. And already a lot of inhabitants have discovered that their chickens or their fruit have been borrowed. In this respect, they are worse than the English. He really tries to differentiate between these troops. And, and I mean, he's a priest, so, so as many priests, he has this curious nature. Uh, one of the things he does, for instance, it's also very interesting for his description of colonial troops. Um, I've already mentioned the Chinese labor corps, but for instance, when the West Indians, who were, again, very often overlooked in historiography, but when the British West Indies regiment arrives, um, he compares them, and at a, mo a certain moment, he says, um, I have found a letter of one of those Negroes, well, of course, it's the slang of the time. I have found a letter of one of those Negroes written to him by his mother. Such honest and Christian motherly feelings, not one of our mothers would speak more aptly. So this means that he, he even he even searched, as to say, he even searched the luggage these men were carrying along just to know more about them. So that shows that his curious nature adds to the, the interest of of the diary in the end. Um, this is a man who travels, who goes into the camps, talks to the soldiers, um, and, and even looks at, at the material they're carrying along. So um, really, really very insightful. No, it's, it's, it's a fascinating account. Um, Dominic, thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.